This evening's scripture is 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good evening. My name is Jason Staff, pastor here at Grace Downtown, and we're so glad that you're worshiping with us tonight. Next week, you get to hear Andrew's voice for the entire sermon. That's the good news. Uh, Tonight, you have to hear me for the entire sermon. So uh, tonight, we are continuing in our series. We're going through this fall semester through 1 Peter, as Andrew just read for us. And we'll we'll jump into that in just a minute. If you are new here, we are so glad that you're with us tonight and we want to get to know you. So make sure you meet someone before you go or you can drop a connect card in the black offering box at the back. And we would love to get connected with you and help you get connected here at Grace Downtown. We want to be a group of people people that doesn't just meet once a week, uh, but really is a part of one another's lives and a part of the larger community because we believe that the gospel is good news and that good news we should think about and share with others, not just one day of the week, but with our whole lives. So that's really what we're about here at Grace. Words are very important. They're very important to me, but they're really important to you and to our society as well, no matter what you think of them. But there's something interesting about words And words can mean different things in different contexts. You can use the same word and mean one thing in one context or in one time, and you can use that same word in another context or another time, and it means something completely different. My father-in-law lives on a farm, and when I visit him, he will often ask me, how are things in the city? He'll say, how are things in the city? And I'm from Kansas City, and so when he asks me about how are things in the city, I immediately think, is he asking about my family in Kansas City? But no, he means Iowa City. Sometimes he'll even say the big city, and he's referring to Iowa City. And if you just very quickly take a poll of everyone here, I bet we would have around 50-50 where some of you come from a place where Iowa City is the city or a big city. And for some of us, it is a smaller city. So we use the word city or even the adjective big city when we're talking about Iowa City, but it can mean very different things to different people. Peter talks about a word here tonight, and we're going to talk about a word for the next few minutes that is very polarizing. It's very alarming when we hear it. There's a lot of baggage and connotations that come with it. And so we need to spend some time with this word. And the word that I'm talking about, you heard a couple times in our passage just now, and we're about to talk about it quite a bit. The word is holy. When we hear that word holy, there's a couple of different things that we can mean. We can either think of and mean our personal holiness and how we act how we conduct ourselves, um, us living up to a certain moral code, or we can think about God and what he gives to us. And as Peter lays out for us, there's a little bit of both here tonight, and so we have some work to do in talking about the word holy. As we get started here tonight, would you pray with me and for me? Heavenly Father, 
we ask for your help here tonight. We are talking about some things that are very complex. And so, God, we confess we need help, and we know that that help needs to come from you. We confess our dependence upon you, our need for you to understand the things that we talk about here tonight. God, give me clarity of thought and speech. God, take my humble words and use them uh, to benefit everyone hearing the sound of my voice. And God, we pray that you would speak. God, thank you that you've not left us alone and in the silence. You've spoken to us through your word. And God, we look forward to what you have to say to us tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you haven't turned there already, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll be taking a look at verses 13 through 16. If you remember back to next week, we ended on verse 13, and I told you that it's a very transitionary sentence um, in Peter's flow of thought, especially in the original Greek in which it is written. So we ended with verse 13 because it starts with the word therefore, meaning that verse 13 refers back to verses 3 through 12, which we also learned in the Greek as one sentence. So here Peter is starting off with the word therefore because he wants us to remember verses 3 through 12 and everything he's about to say in verse 13 and on is built on what he told us in verses 3 through 12. So we start with this word therefore and we're going to talk a little bit more about this verse. So therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in summary, when he says therefore, what he is referring to in verses 3 through 12 is the fact that in Christ we have been born again. We have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. And because of this, we can rejoice right here right now. We talked about because of the fact of what Jesus has done, dying a sinner's death, though that he he was perfectly righteous, and then being put in a real tomb and rising a bodily resurrection three days later, because of the fact that that happened, there is a grace that will be revealed to us in the future, and this causes us to rejoice today. This gives us a living hope. This is the mega theme of 1 Peter, and so it's the mega theme of what we're talking about here in 1 Peter. What does a living hope look like? So when he says, therefore, this is what he's speaking of. And then he gets into mixing some metaphors. He has two metaphors in a row. He mixes some metaphors. So let's dig in a little bit to the word pictures that he's giving us here. He says, therefore, because we are born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus and we can rejoice, Prepare your minds for action. Preparing your minds for action. He uses here an idiom, a turn of phrase, and in the Greek, literally what he says is gird up the loins of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, this was a Jewish idiom that um, stood for Um, the fact that they would have long flowing tunics or robes, including the men, the men and women would have long flowing tunics or robes. And so for a man to run or for anyone to run, you would have to pick up the bottom of your tunic or robe and gird it up, up around your waist so that you could move your legs independently and get where you need to go. 
So girding up your loins stood for pulling up any flowing garments you had on so you could move and go where you needed to go. So your tunic wouldn't trip you up. So you would be unencumbered and you could go where you needed to go. Here he is using this metaphor and telling us that this metaphor is what you should do with your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. And if we think about the metaphor, what he's telling us here is to be careful how we think, prepare ourselves to think, be ready for the action we're called to, let nothing encumber us from what God is calling us to. He is saying here, prepare your minds for action just as you would gird up your loins to prepare yourself for the action you had to go and do. Then he uses another word picture, another illustration. He says, being sober-minded. This word is exactly what it sounds like. It's the opposite of drunkenness. Sober-minded. When you are drunk, you give your mind over and you, your self-conscious mind moves forward, the logic part of your brain doesn't take over, the self-control doesn't take over, and in your drunkenness, you think in a certain way and you do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. And the opposite of that is being sober. And when you think sober, this is helpful for the metaphor that he's using here, when you think sober, don't think without drink or prohibitionist. No, what he's talking about here is temperance. The opposite of drunkenness is temperance. He's saying being temperate-minded. That means we are considering. If you abstain from alcohol, you don't consider how much alcohol you're having. You just say no to alcohol. But if you have a temperance stance towards alcohol, then you are considering how much alcohol you drink so as to not become drunk. That's what he wants us to think about here. Be sober-minded. Think about what is going through your mind. Be aware of the things that you are thinking about. So, preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the first imperative we reach in this section. And the imperative is set your mind. Peter is saying, in light of the gospel, in light of the fact that you have a living hope and that you've been born again into a new family, a right relationship with God, set your hope fully on him. And let's think about what he's told us the opposite of that looks like. The opposite of that is not being ready mentally for what God has called us to. It means not being temperate in our thinking and not giving a care to what we're doing, not being aware of the thoughts going through our mind. What he's telling us here is if we are not aware of what's going through our mind, we will have thoughts that do not take us towards hope. We will have thoughts that take us towards despair. We will have thoughts that lead us towards just kind of settling in. And we will forget about the hope that we have. We will forget that we are born again. We will give in to all those dead hopes that we talked about last week. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here, Peter, when he says the grace, set your hope fully on the grace, the grace he is referring to is the grace that he just talked about in verses 3 through 12. The grace that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so we can be born again to a living hope. 
And Jesus rose from the dead, and we have a future grace set aside for us that we only see in part now and we will fully see at the revelation of Jesus. So he said a lot already, but there's more. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. He calls us obedient children. Children are not always obedient. Right? Is that controversial or that's just a fact, right? Children are not always obedient. But here he is saying, you are obedient children. Why is he saying that they are obedient children? Because they've been born again. They've been born into a new family. A holy God is their father. We're going to read that he has begotten them. You are obedient children. You've been born again into a new family, into a living hope. As obedient children, he says, because you're an obedient child, because you have a new father, because you've been born again into this new family, this spiritual family, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. So we're going to go in reverse order here. When he speaks of former ignorance, he is specifically referring to the Gentile audience that he's writing to. In just a moment, we're going to see evidence that he's also writing to Jews. But to the Gentiles, this is Paul and Peter's kind of language for Gentiles. Former ignorance. Because the Jews were not ignorant of the law of God. But the Gentiles were ignorant to the law of God until they met Christ, till they were in the family of God. So he is writing to obedient children that are Gentiles, and he says, your former ignorance, formerly you didn't know the ways of God. You were not in God's family. That's what he's saying here. But he says, we should not be conformed by the passions that did guide us, that did form us, that did determine how we thought then. He's saying before we come to know Christ, before we are born again into this living hope, our passions, or literally our lusts, are what form us. We are formed by our lusts. I see this all the time with my dog. Dogs seem very smart, especially uh, certain breeds. They're very smart. They catch on to things very quickly. But as my wife likes to remind me, their brain is the size of a walnut. Dogs are entirely driven by their passions, by their lusts. I don't know what drive, drives cats. That's not my area. We're just not sure on that one. But dogs are driven by their lusts, by their passions. There are two sides to this. Dogs get distracted by all kinds of things, they just get distracted by anything that passes their way. If I'm taking the dog out to go to the bathroom and a chipmunk or a squirrel or a dog or a cat or a car or a truck or a person or anything goes by, he's just radar locked on that. If a dog sees something, he goes after it. They're driven by these impulses, these passions, these lusts. Their logical brain doesn't talk them out of it. But then the flip side of that is you can teach them to do anything. You can teach them to do anything. So we... Uh, put in front of our dog to obey treats that he likes. We give him this chicken jerky that doesn't smell too great, but he loves it. And you can train him to do anything if he knows he will get a piece of chicken jerky at the end. He is completely 
formed. He is completely, his behavior is completely determined by his lusts, his passions, his vices, his hedonism, whatever tastes good to him. Without a relationship with God, without being obedient children, without being born again into a living hope, we are driven by whatever we feel like doing. Whatever we feel like doing, our lusts, our hedonism, our passions. Peter says here, as obedient children, don't be conformed by the lusts of your former ignorance. You're new, you're different. You're not the same as you used to be. Verse 15. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Once again, quite a bit to unpack here. It starts with the word, but. But as he who called you is holy, be holy. He's using this as a, con- a contrasting statement, right? That's why the word but is there. He is saying that if we are not obedient children, if we are not born again, if we are not in God's family, then we're formed by our passions, we're led by our lusts, but now we are obedient children, and there is a God who is holy, who has called us to be holy. We're in a totally different situation than before Christ, in our former ignorance, when we didn't know the ways of God, when we didn't have a new family. We were in a different situation, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. Everything starts with a holy God. We go off track very quickly when we start thinking about what we need to do to honor God when we forget that a holy God started everything. The story of the universe, the story of creation, the story of your life, the story of history starts with a good and glorious, perfect holy God. He is the first cause of everything. And as we talked about last week, any good spiritual thing, any spiritual life comes from his call. In fact, Peter uses that language here in verse 15. He who called you is holy. Peter wants to make sure any talk about holiness starts with God. When we think about holy, our first instinct is to think, that's not me, or to think about legalism, or to think about measuring up, or to think about religious icons and religious people and religious things. Here, Peter wants to remind us that holiness starts with God. When he entered into a covenant with his people, he said it was based on his Holiness, when he calls his people back into relationship with him, it is based on his holiness, goodness, and grace. One of our biggest problems in our relationship with God is we get our concept of him through our fickle hearts and actions instead of his holiness. We think that God is as fickle as we are, as flippant as we are. We think God is as temperamental as our earthly father. Or we think God is as absent as our earthly father. We must start with any concept of holiness with the holiness of God. Next, we are told that this holy God calls us. 
he calls us to use some of Peter's other language. In verse 1, verse 1, he says, you are elect. In verse 1, 4, he says, you are born again. In chapter 2, verse 9, we will be told that he has called us out of darkness and into his glorious light. He has called his children out into a new life. He has called his children out into his holiness. He has set apart. That's what holiness means. He has set apart his people for his purposes. He has called them. And we are told to be holy because he is holy. There's a natural progression of things here. There's a holy God who breathes life into us, causing us to be born again to a living hope. And because we are born into a new family where God is our father, we are holy. He produces holy offspring. Not based on any goodness or moral strength of our own or any ability to obey the law of God on our own. It's because he calls us holy all based on the holiness of his son and righteousness given to us. If we belong to him, we are seen as holy and called to live holy lives. He uses a Jewish idiom here at the end of verse 15 when he says, you also be holy in all your conduct. This idea of in all your conduct is a unique Jewish idiom. It means in your manner of life. It refers specifically to your non-religious life. The Jews had this idiom, this turn of phrase, because they wanted to be sure that their young disciples or young men that would become rabbis, knew that God required holiness not just in your religious life, but in your manner of life. How you treat people, how you are at work and play, how you are with your family, how you are in the market, how you treat Gentiles. This was all wrapped up in your conduct, your manner of life. If we belong to him, What he asks for, what he requires, what he calls us to is holiness, not just in our religious life, but in every area of our life. So, we must be holy. This should be a little bit intimidating when we read this because we think, well, it sounds like something is required of me. But let's go through a few things that are true because of this living hope that we receive from being born again. We must be holy. Why must we be holy? First, we have a new father. You have traits of your father, of your earthly father. Whether you have a relationship with him or not, he has left a mark on you. Part of the way you look, part of your genetics, your biochemistry, your health history, how tall you will be, the color of your hair, these things, your dad, your earthly father has some influence on that. If God is our heavenly father, 
and he is holy, and we have been born again into a living hope, and he has given us the righteous perfection of Christ, we will be holy because he calls us holy. And we will desire to live out that holiness in every area of life, in all manner of life, because he's our father, because he's called us to something, and because he is holy. Next, we have a new heart. We have a new heart. We are saved for our relationship with God, and God is holy. And we are told that he takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh that is now pliable to the things of God. We're born again. We have a spiritual life. We have the spirit at work within us. The word of God comes alive and does its work. We have a heavenly father that shows us what the manner of life should look like. We have a new heart. The gift that we get from him according to this passage and many others in the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus from the prophecies of the Old Testament, because of everything we're talking about here, the gift we get must be holiness now and not just in the future. When the Father looks at us, he sees the righteous perfection of his Son. It is completely clear throughout Scripture. We just looked at it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. That there is a future grace to be fully revealed, a holiness fully revealed in heaven. But he sees us as holy right here, right now. Next, we have a new family. We have a new family. If you're adopted into a new family, you have a new rule on your life. You have a new way of living. You have a new manner and conduct of life if you are adopted into a new family. We had a former ignorance, our fleshly family, our worldly family, our earthly family, but now we have a new family. And this family lives a life of holiness. This is a manner of life. We have a new family. There's something amazing that takes place in just a couple of verses here. If we think back to the phrase former ignorance and we look at this Jewish idiom of a manner of life, it shows us that Peter is reading, writing to Jews and Gentiles. But look at verse 14, what he calls them. Children. As obedient children. This new family is made up of Jews and Gentiles and people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people that the thing they all have in common is that they have born, been born again into a living hope. We have talked about this many times, but if you have been born again into a living hope, into this new family, you have something more in common with your brothers and sisters in Christ than your biological family. We now have a new family. We also have a new purpose. Should a Christian watch a rated R movie? Should a Christian drink alcohol? Should they send their kids to public school, private school, homeschool? How should a Christian vote? How should a Christian dress when they go to church? These are all things that have been wrestled with. These are all things that some believers has, have taken on as legalism or the law of God or these are personal decisions that we go to make and these are the things that go through our mind or the conversations that happen around this idea 
of holiness. We spend so much time thinking about rules and law and legalism and judgment towards other people that don't make the same decisions that we make about these issues and more, when what Peter is describing here is that we have been born again into a living hope and we have a new purpose for our lives. It reframes the entire question behind what am I allowed to do and not allowed to do? Where exactly is the boundary line that I cannot cross? And the question becomes, what does this do to my holiness? What does this do to my future holiness? What does this do to my current righteousness in Christ? What does this do for God's purpose in my life? Is this moving me more and more towards holiness? Is this reminding me of the good news that I have received? We start asking completely different questions when we have these principles in mind that Peter is talking about. Peter is saying here, and it says all over scripture, that holiness leads to wholeness. That living a holy life leads to wholeness and a way of living that God intends. Everybody is looking to figure out where human flourishing comes from. It comes from the principles and the facts and the truth that Peter is writing to us about here. Next, we have a living hope. We have a living hope. A holy life is a living hope in action. A holy life is a living hope in action. It shows where our true hope is. Everything that we say no to that is of the flesh and everything that we say yes to that is of the spirit, it shows where our true hope lies. We have a living hope, so we live out that hope in the way that we live our lives. A holy life is someone actively hoping in their Savior, in the future grace that they will receive and the grace that they have received right here, right now, for their past, present, and future sin. That's what a living hope looks like. Lastly, we have a new call on our lives. We read here, In verse 15, he who called you is holy. We have a new call on our life. If we say that we believe that he is holy, then we will do what he says because of his call on his life, on our life. And if we do, we will stand out from the world and the religious people around us. When we do what he has called us to do, this phrase, be holy because I am holy, there's quotation marks around it in verse 16, and that's because Peter here is quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Leviticus. There's four different sections where God tells his people, be holy because I am holy. I want to draw our attention to two because they're most poignant for our conversation here tonight. In Leviticus 11, God tells his people that they are allowed to eat certain things and calls them clean food, and they're not allowed to eat other things because they are unclean food. And he says, this will set you apart from the people around you, and this will set you apart for my purposes. So be holy because I am holy. This reflects who I am 
talk about your manner and conduct of life, even what they ate made them stand apart for his purposes. The next reference is in Leviticus 18, verses 1 through 4. I'll read it here for you. I'll put the references up here on the screen, but I'll read Leviticus 18, 1 through 4. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. He's saying, I delivered you out of Egypt. I am now sending you to Canaan And you're not going to do what they do. You're going to do my law. You're going to treat other people according to my law. My law will be your rule of life for your manner of life. I am holy, so you will be holy. I'm fully set apart, so I'm setting you apart for my purposes and my family. Our community group had a great discussion Um, over this passage uh, last week. And a quote from one of the sisters in the group was, our holiness is a response to the grace we have received. Our holiness is a response to the grace we have received. To quote scholar and commentator Thomas Schreiner, relationship precedes demand. God invites us into a loving born-again relationship into his family, into a living hope, and then he shows us what kind of life he has called us to live. Even after everything we've talked about here tonight, you may find yourself sitting here with a conflict inside of you. There could be two different kinds of conflict within you. As we talk about this idea of holiness, as you read this passage, maybe you've been chewing on this for two weeks because you did the personal study, you did the community group study, you went back over the individual study, you are now hearing the sermon. Maybe you are more confused and there's more conflict in you than when we started. There's a couple of main things that may be causing that conflict. The first one is, this still sounds like the law. This does not sound like grace. The other conflict that may be in you is a conflict that says, I know this is right. I don't measure up. I believe that I've received grace. I believe that I have the spirit. I believe that I've been born again to a living hope, but nothing about me is holy. Or I know I fall short of the holiness that I am being called to by First Peter and by the book of Leviticus. I know that God is holy, but I am certainly not holy and I have no hope of being holy on this side of heaven. The truth of the matter is that the law was never meant to make the people of God fully holy. They could never measure up to that. 619 laws in the Old Testament. And if you read the Old Testament, you can see God's people break every single one. Just like we do. 
God's people always needed to be cleansed and their sin atoned for so they could meet with a holy God. The most common name for where God met his people in the Old Testament is the tent of meeting. The tent of meeting is the most common phrase used for the tent or the tabernacle where God's people, where God would meet with his people. He wanted to meet with his people just like he wants to meet with you tonight. And he wants to meet with you in your dorm room and he wants to meet with you wherever you live and work and play. He wants to meet with you tomorrow morning, not just tonight here at church, but there's a problem, right? How can we have a meeting with a holy God? My wife and I were watching this news special last night on the wife of the, or the life of the queen, the life of the queen and everything that she has done in her life, lived an amazing life. And she met with many, many dignitaries, celebrities, world leaders. And one of the clips was showing some of the weird things people have done, like touching her, like putting their hands on her, which you're not supposed to do, saying weird things. Um, <laughs> George W. Bush, this is what happens when I get done early. I tell a story, sorry. Um, George W. Bush said something about the queen attending event, an event in the year 1776. And the crowd gave a nice laugh. And George W. Bush looked at the queen and winked at her. I, I'm pretty sure, I'm American, but I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to wink at the queen. People do weird things when they're in the presence of greatness. I feel awkward around human beings that I interact with on any given day. A holy God wants to meet with his people. A holy God wants to meet with you and me. Not just here in a 160-year-old building, but in our car and in our lab and in our dorm and in our home and in our backyard and in our neighborhoods. He wants to meet with us. But we're not holy. We have to be cleansed and our sin atoned for. And we have to have a righteousness given to us. And the good news, the gospel truth, is that in Christ, we find everything that we need. Look with me here at Romans 8. Verses 1 through 5. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. This verse is telling us because of what Christ has done, There is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And now we're guided not by the flesh, not by the law, but by the Spirit of God. In verse 4, he even tells us 
that the righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled for us. The fulfilled, it happened in the past, and it's something that we receive. It's a passive word that's used here in the Greek. We have received something that happened in the past, Christ fulfilling all righteousness for us, dying on the cross for our sins, rising again, and then we are told right here, right now, on this side of heaven, we live not according to the flesh, but we live according to the Spirit. Paul is just saying here very succinctly what Peter took a very long sentence to say, that because of what Christ has done in the past and because of the future glory and grace and holiness that we can that we will receive in the future, we live a different kind of life now. We are guided by the Spirit. God sees us as holy. We have a new rule of life that governs everything that we do, that motivates everything that we do. We are no longer driven by the lusts of our former ignorance, of our flesh, where we just follow every squirrel and chipmunk that goes past us. We are guided by a holy, loving, and gracious God. This is the life that God has called us into. This is what it means to be born again into a living hope. I have two questions for you tonight. The first one is, have you been made clean? The only difference between anyone in this room is not that some of us have earned God's love and some of us have not. No, we're, we're all the same before God. Only those who have been made clean can be called holy or have any hope of living a holy life. So I ask, have you been made clean? Not have you cleaned yourself up. Have you received cleaning that only Christ can offer you? Tonight, today can be the day of your cleaning, of your salvation, of God's holiness and righteousness given to you. You can be born again into a living hope right here, right now. Second question I have is for those who have been made clean, not by their own efforts, not by their own goodness, not based on their ability to figure it all out, but to those of you who have been made clean, do the people in your life know that you have been made clean, that you know good news? When we know good news, we share it with everyone else. Have you communicated to others that you have been made clean by Christ's work on your behalf? There's two ways you can do that. One is in your manner of life, just everywhere that you go, sharing the good news of what Christ has done for you. The second way that you can do this is by being obedient to Christ and being baptized. Being baptized, that's the way that you communicate to the church and to the world that you have been made clean. Baptism is an outward sign of inwardly what Christ has already done for you, making your, you clean. We do baptisms right out here on our front porch. Two reasons. This floor can't hold that much water. And secondly, we want the whole downtown area to know what Christ has done in your life. If you would like to be baptized, you can join me here down in our offices before the service next week four o'clock. 
come, we'll walk through the purpose of baptism and what it is, and then we are going to do baptisms the following week, the first Sunday in October. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that I have good news to share with everyone here tonight. Father, that good news is not anything I have done for them or anything they can do for themselves. The good news I have to share is not the good news of Grace Community Church. But Father, thank you for the good news that I can share. That men, women, and children can be made clean. Sinners like us can be made clean before a holy God. God, would you do your work in our lives? Would you remind us that we have been made clean? And may we believe the good news and share the good news with those around us this week. In Jesus' name, amen.